0: The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. But this week we do continue on in our Matthew series. The past two messages in Matthew have been looking at this certain thematic section, which began at the beginning of chapter 8 with three healing miracles that emphasized the authority and the power of Christ. There was then an interlude showing two men confronted with the cost of following Jesus. And this section now picks up with three more miracles. Matthew is using this whole section, chapters 8 and chapters 9, to help us understand who Christ is, to walk deeper in an understanding of the call that he's placed on our lives and ultimately the mission and the harvest that lays before us. That, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, that's going to be the end of this section of miracles and thematic element that we have. And so today, we're given three more miracles to interact with. And Matthew uses these varied stories to point us towards one great reality, namely that Christ has the power to forgive and to save. So please turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 23 through chapter 9, verse 8. Let me pray for us before we read. Father, we ask that you would Be with the reading of Your Word this morning. Your Word is powerful. Your Word is true. I ask even just in the reading of Your Word that You would strike hearts and speak to our minds and affect us. Pray, Lord, that You would use my words this morning to help the reality of Christ go forth. Pray that You would be magnified, that You would be glorified We ask that you send your spirit that we might understand and we might receive what you have for us this morning. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Verse 23, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the waves and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out, "'and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank "'into the sea and drowned in the waters. "'The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, "'especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. "'And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, "'and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. "'And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city.' but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there is a lot going on here, and there are so many things that we could unpack in this passage, but yet again, if we broke down each little facet of any of these larger sections, we would be in Matthew for the remainder of our time together as a church. But with all all units of scripture, there usually is an overarching message, a point that's being driven home that the Lord is seeking to make known to us. And that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. These three miracles, they show the Lord's power over nature, the Lord's power over the demonic, his, his power over illness. But it all culminates with the Lord's power and ability to forgive sin. And that is at the center of who Christ is and what He's done for us. He is the wonder-working God, but wonders would be of no value to us unless there was a way for our greatest need to be overcome. And that's what we will meditate on this morning, the reality that Christ can loose any bond, He can control any forces, and He can forgive any sin. So we're going to look at two things, our great need and our great Savior. Ever since I was a young kid, I have been fascinated by the Titanic. When I first heard about it, the movie came out, I think I was in fifth grade, and I just was, I was so fascinated by this event. And recently, I've taken up the fascination yet again, and I've been reading a few books about the event and testimonies and the lives of people after and, and before and sociological looks at all of it. But one of the things, there's many things I find very fascinating about the whole story, but one of the things that I find very fascinating is that though the initial collision with this iceberg, if you know the story of the Titanic, the initial collision could be felt by most people. Some certainly felt it more than others. Most people had no idea of the plight That they were in immediately after impact. It was inconceivable to most people that in a matter of a few hours, this massive ship, the largest ship the world had ever known, opulent, grand, decked out to the nines, was going to be at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. So immediately after impact, the band continued to play, food continued to be served, cards were dealt, people slept Unknowing that in a matter of minutes it would all be over and that 1,500 people would be lost. That's why many of the first lifeboats that launched off the Titanic were largely empty. People didn't want to get in them, they didn't think there was a need to get in them, they didn't understand the seriousness of the situation. Eventually they did, very quickly they did, and their desperate need became apparent. And what remains is still the greatest known maritime disaster in the history of the world, apart from military conflicts. There's never been such a great loss of civilian life on the seas. Well, this serves as a metaphor for the dangers that we face. As humans, we have this terrible tendency of forgetting our neediness when all seems to be going well. When the bills are getting paid, when our health is holding steady, when our social calendars are full, we can feel like the people on the Titanic, full steam ahead. We're blissfully unaware of our needs and our utter dependence upon the God of grace to sustain us and uphold us. In times of peace and prosperity, we are actually tempted to forget the God who gave us that peace and prosperity to begin with. The old phrase goes, there are no atheists in foxholes, meaning that when we're desperate, we cry out to a higher power. But when we feel like we have it all together, we don't. Well, these three miracle stories in Matthew continue to remind us that we are a needy people who are dependent on the Lord to keep us afloat. So, first, we read in verse 23, and when he got into his boat, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. The verses right before this showed Jesus telling his disciples that to follow him meant wandering, meant difficulty, meant forsaking all for the kingdom of God. And then in the next verse, we read of these men who followed, I think, The use of that language and repetition is important. They followed, and just as promised, here comes a trial, a challenge. As they crossed the Sea of Galilee, this great storm blew upon them, and the boat, we are told, was being swamped by the waves. I do, I love this image so much. It's such a a bizarre image to think. So this boat is being thrown around by these waves. This sea is overwhelming these fishermen who are working hard to keep things going. And then here is the Lord just kind of peacefully with his eyes shut, somehow not awakened by any of this. I don't understand why. Maybe he was just so physically exhausted at that point. Supernatural sleep. Apparently he's a heavy sleeper. I don't know what it was. But it had to be strange for these men to look back and say, how could he possibly be sleeping through this? So this boat's being swamped and what do they do? They wake him and they ask that he might save them. Now, while we'll talk in a few minutes, Jesus challenges their faith. He says, oh, you of little faith. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. We can say they did at the very least recognize that Christ had power to help them. And in their asking, they illuminate for us the seriousness of their situation. Remember, many In this group were skilled fishermen. These men had encountered storms before, but this storm must have been something the likes of which they hadn't dealt with and they particularly felt like was going to lead to their demise. Now, they turned to Jesus. He's not a fisherman. He's a carpenter. He's not the one that you're going to be asking to help with sailing. But they knew they needed something above and beyond just help with sailing. Now, it is possible that they recognized very quickly with this small storm, hey, why fret at all? When we have Jesus here in our boat, He can handle this. But given the track record of the disciples that we see in Scripture, I think it's more likely that they had reached the end of their rope. They had been trying to deal with this. They had been trying to navigate these waters and then realizing that for all of their Fishermen's skills, they couldn't handle this situation. They were facing a storm that they feared might do them in. These men felt their helpless, helplessness and their need. Living in Pennsylvania, we can take for granted the fierceness of the created world. We don't really have to deal with blizzards and hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes or any other major disasters with any kind of frequency here, generally we feel pretty safe. But there are places in the world where such things are extremely common. Tornadoes rip through, floods overwhelm, hurricanes batter and earthquakes destroy. We just saw this in Turkey. Horrendous what happened there. Hearing of these things or reading a story like this should move us to compassion for those who are in such situations and it should serve as a reminder to us of our finiteness. For all of our technological prowess and forward march of modernity, we still have no control over the weather. We can predict it with some degree of accuracy, but we certainly can't change it. We can't stop a tornado from spinning We can't push back the hurricane. As powerful as we might feel at times, the reality is we are like the men in this boat at the mercy of the Lord's gracious hand. A lesson that they learned well here. They then move from this storm-tossed ship to the other side of the sea to learn yet another lesson. They go to a city in the region of the Gadarenes where these two demon-possessed men come out and confront them. Now, a quick aside, as you read the Gospels and you read varying Gospels, remember, different angles are being reported of different stories. So this one in particular, in Mark and Luke's Gospel, they talk about one man coming out. This one has two. There's different reasons why people believe that. So I think it's there were two men coming out of this tomb, and Mark and Luke simply reported about one of them. Whereas Matthew, for emphasis and effect, talks about both of these men who came out Now, these two men come running out of the tombs. The disciples would have been immediately concerned. Tombs were unclean, the places of demons and magic. Even today, you're going to be considered at the very least an odd bird if you take up residence in a graveyard. There's a reason we don't hold our church picnics out back. So these men, they come running out of the tombs sending off alarm bells for the disciples and are described as so fierce that no one can pass that way. The other account in Mark describes at least one of these men as being unable to be bound. The other account in Mark talks about that. These men were a terror and a fright to the community. They were crazed strong and not to be messed with. And here they come running out to Christ and His followers, and the demons afflicting them cry out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? This is a very interesting passage. There's a lot going on here with these men and the pigs and all of this, and demons. And while we aren't making our focus this morning on our understanding a biblical theology of the demonic I do want us to take a minute to slow down and consider this interaction with these demon-possessed men because so far as a church, as we've preached through Matthew and other things, this topic has not been broached for us. But demonic possession, the power of Satan, the spiritual world is something that's very misunderstood in our day and something that we need to have a biblical understanding of In the Western world, most for a long time have relegated angels and demons to the things of myth. You talk of such things, that's the talk of uncivilized, backward, and superstitious people. There's no such thing as possession. Like all other supernatural events, they say, there's some natural explanation for what's going on here, what's happening in this story. Well, unfortunately... Such anti-supernatural thinking has even seized many in the Western church. Whether consciously or not, we are skeptical when it comes to the spiritual realm. It's the air that we breathe. Some churches have gone, gone so far as to jettison the very idea of demons or even Satan himself. Well, passages such as this don't allow us to write off such realities. As believers, we stand upon God's word, and God makes clear that there are evil forces that exist and are at work in our world. And while the Lord does not want us to be obsessed with these demonic powers, seeing them around every corner, finding them in every obstacle— which is the other end of the spectrum. There's denial, and then there can be kind of an over-obsession. We don't want to be in either of those places, but the Lord does want us to be aware and on guard, which is why we aren't told a lot about the demonic in Scripture, but we are told some things that we need to know. So, just what are these demonic beings? Well, we know from the Scriptures That all that God created was good. That includes all manner of heavenly and spiritual being. But we also know that some of God's created order has been corrupted through sin. That includes us as humans. That also includes some of God's angels, spiritual beings that he created for his glory. Some of these beings acted out in prideful rebellion. We're told that these fallen angels get their marching orders from Satan, the head of the rebellious heavenly beings. Satan is described as the prince of the power of the air. He's the father of lies. He's a deceiver from the very beginning. And he leads his team of fallen angels into the same behavior. Lies and deceit are their mainstay. We know that murder and every other kind of destructive means are tools they are happy to employ. Look at these poor men. What kind of life have they devolved into in their interaction with the demonic? Demons hate God. They are out to defame His name and destroy, if it were possible, His people. Demons are real. And they are just as real today as they were 2,000 years ago. And while demons aren't behind every evil thing that happens, this this is a cursed And broken world, our own hearts are well trained in sin. Humans often, either knowingly or unknowingly, serve with the enemy without immediate and direct influence just because of our own sin, waywardness, foolhardiness. But there are at times where demons do directly influence, and sometimes in a very significant way. And this is what we see here in this passage. This is what we would call demonic possession. That's a modern term. Now, the original languages don't use a word that directly correlates to possession as we think of it. Scripture doesn't paint a picture of people being controlled by demonic forces without any responsibility for that interaction, which is why some theologians don't even like to use the term possession as it implies a sort of disembodied experience as if the host has no part in the situation whatsoever. What we believe from the scriptural witness is that what we call demonic possession are demons having such a stronghold on the heart of a person that they have essentially taken full hold of them to do their bidding and empower them to do so, can even manipulate them physically. We see this in other instances in the scriptures. And that's the case of these two men. We don't know how they came to be in this state. We don't know what doors they opened to the demonic. We don't know what invitations they laid out. But somehow they had become host to and minions for demons. And these demons had such an influence on these men that they not only gave them supernatural strength, but as we can see here, they could even speak through them. Again, I believe these men had somehow allowed themselves in some way to reach this point and they had so succumbed that now these demonic spirits had a death grip. And for the skeptical among us, know that these things did not stop in the first century. And there are, they are not myths that were made up. Stories of possessions and exorcisms still exist Today. I personally have known some who have either had a demon cast out or who have been a part of that process. And these experiences often involve strange voices, bizarre physical manifestations, and even at times unknown foreign languages being spoken. Demons and Satan wreak havoc in our world and ensnare and enslave individuals. And they've done so to these men. Now, as believers, we should not be afraid of these things. We have the Spirit of God in us and with us. As we pursue holiness and we practice faith in God, the enemy, we are told, runs from us. And we'll talk in a minute about Jesus' power over these forces, but we do need to be reminded at times that Satan is not a silly guy with a pitchfork. Demons are not bumbling oafs who are just looking to make a little mischief. They're not funny, they are not fun, they are utterly opposed to God, they are powerful and they are not to be toyed with. Now this topic can raise a lot of practical questions. We don't have time today to dig into these things, nor is that the thrust of this passage, but suffice to say we need to be discerning and never dabble with the workings of evil. The plight of these men reminds us that there are real cosmic forces at play. We know from the scriptures, Satan desired to snatch Peter away from the Lord. We're told the, the enemy prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And we see these teeth full bared here in the lives of these men. And then finally, we have the last man, a paralytic. Who cannot walk, being brought to Jesus by his friends. You may know this man from other parallel accounts in Mark and Luke. He's the one who's lowered through the roof by his friends because the room is so crowded. This man and his friends were desperate for the Lord to do something. But this particular miracle is where this whole point of our great need comes together. And I believe this is what all three of these stories build to and are teaching. What does Jesus identify as the immediate need of this man? It's not walking. It's forgiveness of sin. Now, I do not believe that's because he's saying this man's paralysis was a direct result of his sin. That is a possibility, but the way that this passage is set up The overall context don't seem to point in that direction. In another recorded story in the Gospels, the disciples ask Jesus of a man born blind, who sinned, this man or his parents? To their surprise, Jesus says, neither. Not that they didn't sin, but the sin was not why this man was born blind. It's so that the glory of God might be displayed in his healing. I believe that same sentiment is here. This man needs physical healing, yes, and he will be healed, but the physical healing serves as a vehicle to highlight his greater need, the forgiveness of sins. And this, according to scriptures, is our greatest need. The ferocity of the storm, the insanity of the demoniacs, the permanency of paralysis are all reminders that we are needy people, but not just physically needy. We read in the book of Romans that all the groanings of this world came about because of our sin. The minute that Adam and Eve decided to trust themselves over God, curse and chaos was introduced. To a once perfect world. This world was not meant to have deadly squalls, not meant to have demonic possessions, not meant to have paralysis, but it does, and it has it because we rebelled against our God, and each and every one of us in our sin continues to rebel against him. And like the Titanic, we are all on board a ship that's destined for destruction. Whether we realize it or not, The ship of this world is sinking. Our very lives will sink. When we're young, we feel like we could live forever, but death could be in the next second for any one of us in this room. We will all meet death. And without forgiveness of sin, we will spend an eternity separated from our God, an eternal despair, because being apart from God means being away from all. That is good. We are a needy people. We are a desperate people. But, and this is why Matthew wrote this gospel but there is one who has the power to save. So we have seen our great need, so now we see the great Savior. So we're gonna walk back through all of these stories and see how Christ is that Savior. Back to the storm. Jesus wakes up at the urging of his disciples and he says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. Now this does raise a question. These men obviously had, as we said, some measure of faith. They woke the Lord to handle this situation. They were turning to him. So what then was the faith that they lacked? Well, I think what they lacked and the expression of their lack of faith was their fear. There was a desperation that seemed to verge on unbelief that God was ultimately in control of this situation. They thought God was asleep, because Jesus was. (laughs) But God was not asleep. They were panicked. Nonetheless, the Lord, in his compassion, and despite their weak faith, stands and commands the winds and the waves to stop. Which? As a side note, is a kind reminder to us of the Lord's faithfulness to us, even in spite of our weak faith at times. Love the Father who cries out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We see that here in these men. There is a faith that's being expressed, though Jesus makes clear it's an imperfect faith, but the Lord is kind to us. And He responds and He stops this storm. Now, I don't know what that was like. Did He shout? Did He speak softly? Did it stop immediately? Did it slowly die down? Whatever played out, it was undeniable what had just happened. Jesus just told the weather to behave. No one can do such a thing. Yes, in the past, prophets prayed to God that he might bring rain or he might stop it, but no one spoke in the authority of their own power, yet Jesus did. And this amazed these men so much that they marveled and said, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? For Jesus to have control over the seas was to once again display divinity. Only God controls the weather. We read in the book of Job and elsewhere of God, Job says, He says to the snow, fall on the earth, and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour. The breath of God produces ice, and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. At his direction, they swirl over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings clouds to punish men or to water his earth and show his love. Why is the sun shining today? Because God has determined that it will. Why have we not had rain for weeks? Because of the Lord's will. Why did the wind and the waves stop? Because Jesus is the eternal Son of God through whom, for whom, and by whom all things exist and who upholds the universe by the word of His power. We should not be surprised that Jesus could do such a thing if He created the world. I personally don't even like using the word nature or natural phenomenon. I prefer creation when it fits. Nature carries with it this idea of independence. This is the natural order of things. No, there is no natural or inevitability to our world. Yes, God often works through laws that he has established and he keeps things running in a predictable manner, but it still is always at his bidding, it still is all in his hands. Our laws that we describe are simply us describing the continuity of how God chooses to run and control things. At his word, rain can stop, winds can cease, and all can be still. And he still does this today. I have on more than one occasion seen the Lord answer a prayer about the weather, changing forecasts seemingly on a dime. Jesus has power over all creation, and he displays that here. And then our passage goes on to show that it's not just the physical creation he has power over, but the spiritual realm as well, which we see through the demoniacs. We see these men, they come out in all their force, yet still are unable to overcome the Lord. In fact, they don't even try. They don't even try to come against him. Why? Because though they oppose him, they know that he is their superior. We know from the scriptures that Satan and demons, they're powerful, but they can do nothing if not granted by God in his wisdom to do so. In the parallel passage in Mark, it says that Jesus granted them permission to go into the pigs. This is why as believers, we should not be afraid of demons or Satan we don't live in a universe that is a cosmic battle between good and evil, as if wondering which side is going to win. There is no question. God is in control of all things. There's mystery as to how and why evil exists, but God is absolutely in control of all things. They may rage, but their raging is an absurdity. They have lost They're so blinded in their sin that even though they know that Jesus is the great judge, which is why they say, time's not come to judge us. They know he's the great judge, the eternal son of God, and that he will reign forever. They still choose to go to their eternal damnation opposing him. And this is what we see of these demons. They know Christ will one day judge they just ask that it not be today. And so they say, if you're going to cast us out, please just cast us out into that herd of pigs over there. And at a simple word of go, Jesus sends these powerful beings away from these two tormented men and into the herd of pigs, which then run down the bank and into the water. Now, we don't know for sure why the demons wanted to go into the pigs. We don't know for sure why the pigs ran into the water. Was it Were they spooked? Did the demons directly lead them into the water? We're not really sure, but we do know that this served as a very visible sign to all present that the demons had in fact left these men. These men had been delivered and the demons were gone. And whatever cost came to the pigs or to their owners because of it, the deliverance that had been worked was far greater. And it was good that this had taken place. At his word... God had set these long, pitiful, enslaved men free. In Mark's account, we read that at least one of these men turned to the Lord because of this deliverance and wished to go with him on his mission. Yet the Lord tells him to stay because there was work for him to do there. And we see from this passage that work did need to be done in that town because even though the local crowds saw these once crazed men now standing in sound mind, and even though they heard of this visible manifestation of demonic power going into these pigs, leading them all into the water, they responded by asking the Lord to leave. They didn't want any more crazy things to happen, they didn't want to lose any more livestock. They missed the point entirely of what it was all about and what had just happened. To beg the Lord to leave was to ask God to depart. It was to ask the one who had the power over all things, including the most violent forces of evil, to leave their presence. How sad it is when people are blinded to the power, the love, the mercy, and the grace of the Lord Jesus and ask him to leave being blinded in their sin from seeing the great good that he has for them. That's why in Mark, he tells this man to go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And it says, and he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled the lord of all creation the lord who works these wonders tames these seas casts out these demons he does so as displays of his power so that people might see he desires to show his mercy most notably through the forgiveness of sins which brings us again to the paralytic All of these displays of power are meant to serve as verification that the Lord does in fact have the power to forgive sins. When Christ says in verse 2 of chapter 9 that he forgives the paralytic sin, the scribes say, this man is blaspheming. They know that it is God and God alone who has the authority to forgive sins in this way. Jesus was no earthly priest. No sacrifice had been made in the temple, so such a declaration of forgiveness could only be made by God himself. Yet again, another display of the divinity of Christ, followed by yet another example of Christ doing what only God can do, perceiving the thoughts and intentions of these men. And he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He asks these men, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? The answer is, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because such a statement is imperceptible. There's no way to verify it to be true. It's harder to say rise and walk And that any charlatan could claim to forgive sins, but if you tell someone to rise and walk, if they don't rise and walk, then people are going to know that you ain't got the power. So he says, which is easier to say? He says, I'm healing this man of his paralysis so that you see I do have such power. And this healing serves as a pointer to you that it's not just that I can make a lame man walk, but that I do, in fact, have the power and the authority to forgive sins, which in reality is the harder thing to do, though not necessarily the harder thing to say. And that's the point of all of these miracles combined. Jesus does what we cannot. He pardons our sins and this came at great cost to himself he paid a price we could never have paid in his perfection he took on our sin so that the penalty of sin could be paid by him through his death so that we might be forgiven he did this for us It then says, and he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. The purpose of all of these miracles is to bring glory to God and to reveal to us that Jesus is the great Savior who has the power to forgive sins. If he can stop the waves, he can forgive your sin. If he can cast out demons, he can forgive your sins. If he can make a lame man walk, he can forgive your sins. If you sit here this morning and you feel that you are too tarnished, You've done something too evil, you're ashamed, you feel guilty, you feel condemned, you believe you have to clean yourself up before you can approach God. Know that your sin is no match for the one who tamed Leviathan and who will one day cast Satan into the pit. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, and that includes yours if you turn to him. Then, just like the demon-possessed men who were freed from their captivity to evil, you can be set free from your enslavement to sin, free from condemnation, and free from guilt to walk in peace with God once more. Jesus calming storms, healing bodies, casting out demons. These things were seen by all these people. These are eyewitness accounts. These things happened They're wonderful, they're gracious, but as the phrase goes, they are only rearranging the furniture on the Titanic. They're good, but they're temporary. What we need most from the Lord is forgiveness of sin and newness of life. Brothers and sisters, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then your sins are forgiven. You don't have to walk around with a weight on your back. The Lord can and does remove them for you through Jesus Christ. You have been rescued. Death is not the end of your story. So let's end this passage hearing again the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark to one of those freed men. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. We are a needy people, but we have a merciful Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you that you can stop the storms, that you control all manners of evil, that you have won that there is victory in Christ and we thank you, Lord, above all that you have made a way for our sins to be forgiven. Thank you, Lord, that we can be cleansed, that we can have newness of life. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and you died on the cross for our sins, that you could confidently say you're forgiven. pray as we go, Lord, that our hearts would be stirred in affection for these truths. Pray, Lord, that we would do as you commanded this man, that we would go and tell our friends how much you have done for us and how you've had mercy on us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell, given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.